Hi there. I'm Daniel Foytek, the host and producer for The Wicked Library and the co-creator and producer of The Lift, two scary story podcasts. So I was excited to do the intro for this episode since it deals with such a scary topic. Fear of the dark and going to sleep alone are two of our earliest fears, I think. The dark shadows of the night and the possibility of the monsters under the bed and in the closet, and of course in your dreams, is something that I think you carry with you as you get older. When I was a boy, I lived in an old house that creaked and groaned pretty much all night long. This drove my imagination wild because I had that secret knowledge all children share that there are definitely things better left alone that hide in the darkness, moving around, watching you. The kind of things that only a cover drawn tight can protect you from. Each night was kind of a battle of will when I tried my best to ignore the things unseen that sat in the shadows and tried my very best not to call for a glass of water. Which, I mean, honestly, I didn't really want. I just wanted the presence of my mother and the light that came with the delivery of the water. My mom was a very smart woman, and it didn't take her very long to figure out why I was actually calling for water constantly. I mean, the conditions in my room were not Sahara-like, so she knew that there was something else to it. And I remember her telling me that if something scared me or if something was in the room that I didn't want there, all I had to do was tell it to go away and it would have to listen. I never thought of that. It seemed like a great idea. So the next night, whenever I was laying there in the darkness and I could feel these things moving around, wandering around, watching me, hearing the creaks in the floorboards and that sort of thing, I did what she said. I called out to it and I said, this is my room. You need to go away. This is my place, not yours. I don't want you here. And the funny thing was, I had this definite sense that things were in the room and they were very surprised that I knew that they were there. At any rate, this seemed to work really well. They went away. And the next few nights went pretty well. Um, I remember my request for water uh, dried up, as it were, and I felt safe and I didn't mind going to bed anymore. About a week after this, I woke up and I could feel something pressing down on me, something sitting on my chest. I, I remember waking up just being terrified, immediately terrified before I even opened my eyes. And when I did open my eyes, there was something there. There was this large thing sitting on my chest with these huge, dark black eyes just staring at me. And I can remember still the way that its breath smelled, just this sour funk smell. And I, I get chills still whenever I think about this because it, it was really freaky. And I still remember what it said. Since... You know we're here. We thought it would be rude not to say hello. And I remember looking down, 
because I was struggling and trying to get away from this thing and I couldn't move at all. And seeing two more like it, each one holding down one of my legs. And I did what I guess any kid would do in that situation. I closed my eyes as tight as I could. I balled my hands up into fists. And when I peeked again, they were gone and it was morning. And that was a long time ago. And I've moved many, many times since then, all over the country, in fact. But there are still some nights when I wake up in the middle of the night and I can feel something or some things in the room. And I guess I just know better now than to actually say anything. Because the last thing you want is their attention. The thing that is a little freaky for me right now is I'm recording this late at night in the dark. And it occurs to me that now the ones here in this house know that I'm aware of them. And uh, I'm dying for a glass of water right now for some reason. Seven. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This Mister telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. Just a quick second to thank all of our followers on Twitter and our subscribers and everyone that's leaving reviews and spreading the word. Yeah, the good word, apparently. It's great. We've been doing really well. We want to thank all of you for joining us. If you're just finding our show, a lot of people are. Yeah, our Lavender Scare episode had a ton of downloads, and we're really excited. Let us know if there are certain topics you're interested in. We have a giant list of things, and we are kind of picking at random. We are. It's really fun. Uh, we get the magical mystery hat out and draw a topic, and sometimes Jacob's like, no, Samantha, we can't discuss your toes for two hours. How'd that get in the hat? How'd your toes get in the hat, Sam? I don't understand where hats go. That's that's the crooks of it right there. It sounds like a Monty Python skit. <laughs> My life kind of sounds like a Monty Python skit. But, you know, we can't talk too much about that today because we have a lot of cool, interesting stuff to talk about. Which we will do right after we tell you about the Just a Story hotline. We have a hotline? We do have a hotline. Like for urban legend emergencies? Yes. What's an urban legend emergency? It's when you hear something and you're not sure if it's true and you can't even find it on Snopes. I've always wanted a bat signal. That's why I have one tattooed on my body. In lieu of bat signal, I think that the best thing that someone could do is call this number and leave a voicemail. And then I will know. So this would be if someone wanted to leave an urban legend that we could play at the beginning of the episode as our intro. Yeah, that'd be great. And we might be able to announce topics on Twitter if you follow us there. Or if there's just one you've always been interested in and really want us to cover, if you leave a great telling of the urban legend, it might spark our curiosity. Goodness knows that's easy to do. But anyway, the Just a Story hotline can be reached by dialing 512 222 three three 
1-800-273-8875. So if you'd like to hear your voice on the show, please call and leave us a message on the Just a Story hotline for all of your urban legend emergencies or existential crisis. If you just want to talk, whatever, it's cool. Now that you're done with your existential crisis, <laughs> you know, we have a really, really cool topic to talk about today. What is it? One that we've we've talked about doing since we started the show. Yeah. It is the old hag. The old hag and all of her wonderful incarnations. So what is the old hag, Jacob? I feel like it's a phenomenon in and of itself. Well, it is. And that's, that's one of the many, many terms that we'll talk about today that she used to describe sleep paralysis. That sounds medical. It is. <laughs> the old hag, which sounds not medical at all, and you're telling me it's the same thing as sleep paralysis, which sounds like a very official diagnosis. It kind of is. In the middle of this very cultural phenomenon and this very medical sounding phenomenon is an experience that happens to around 30% of the population. So a typical sleep paralysis experience will feel like you are trapped in your body, wide awake, unable to move. Right, and sometimes you get these really odd feelings, such as a presence or an old hag crushing your chest, or feeling like you're floating or falling, or these other feelings that you get. Right, and some people hear beeps and boops and noises and mattress springs creaking and metallic sounds. Some people smell stuff that smells really bad. It can vary a lot between sleepers, obviously, but the most consistent thing is that they're lying flat on their back, their body tries to move and it can't, and they feel like they're in the same environment that they went to sleep in. Yeah, and so this has been documented in medical literature back to the Greeks, back to the Romans, back to Byzantine. So there are descriptions of this in lots of ancient text, and mostly medical text, but also mythological, of course, because this really does sit in the middle of those two things. We love that middle ground. Yeah, it's kind of where we live. Hi, folks. Originally, if you were to start looking before the 20th century, these things would be called nightmares. Well, that's just bad dreams, right? That's what it means now. Well, what did it mean then? Then, a nightmare was literally the definition of sleep paralysis. okay. So if you looked up the definition, let's say in Johnson's Seminole Dictionary, the definition literally, I looked it up in in the dictionary, it says, nightmare, incubus. Well, that's curious. Not the band. Like I said, there's some really great medical texts with it. Described one Dutch physician, Isbren van Dimmerbroek, published a lot of case histories about this in 1664, one of which was titled Of the Nightmare. And I want to point out that there is an all-important hyphen between night and mare in these older texts, correct? Right. Yeah, even in the dictionary that's there. Yeah, and I think that that hyphen may come into play as we get to the bad dream thing, and we'll see some transitioning happening. So in the text Of the Nightmare, and all of these great descriptions, and this is a great one. In the nighttime, when she was composing herself to sleep, sometimes she believed the devil lay upon her and held her down, sometimes that she was choked by a great dog or thief lying upon her breast, that, so that she could hardly speak or breathe, and when she endeavored to throw off the burden, she was not able to stir her member. 
I feel like descriptions of sleep paralysis from antiquity always read like bodice rippers. Something that the Shelleys and Lord Byron would come up with as they were sitting in their dark and stormy castle. Yeah, exactly. So the term sleep paralysis does come around in the 20th century with modern medicine. The physician Dr. Wilson, uh, S.A. Kinnear Wilson, coined the term in 1928, and he was studying narcolepsy and sleep paralysis, and he's actually the person that discovered Wilson's disease. Isn't that cool? What the hell is Wilson's disease? It has to do with copper metabolism. Anyway. I'm so happy for Dr. Wilson. (laughs) It's interesting. Yes, dear. Copper metabolism is riveting. What do you have that's riveting? Really? I have stories. (laughs) What could be more interesting than that? We could talk about how the old hag presents herself as the perfect intersection between biology and culture possibly would be more interested in the copper metabolism. Okay, fine. Well, tell me about that. Okay. So sometimes belief can take hold and actually change our physiological reactions to situations. Yeah, think of like like a placebo. Here's another medical term for you. Would you stop with your medical terms? I have a medical term for you. Nocebo. It is not a medical term. It is a term. I don't know if it's medical or not, but it is a term. <laughs> Nocebos are described as placebos evil twins. And so placebo is like if you take something and you get that positive result from it. So if you think that eating a paleo diet will make you feel more energetic... You will feel more energetic. Yeah. What would be the opposite of that? I would guess that something would give you like a negative reaction. The term we probably hear more often that's thrown around way more in pop psychology, as far as I know, is self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you think that's fair? Sure, if you're thinking of beliefs affecting how you would act. Right, if you think you're going to do poorly on the test, even though you studied and studied and studied and really knew the information well, you, you, you might do poorly on the test. So there was a really interesting instance of this in a study conducted by the sociologist David P. Phillips. He noticed that Chinese-American women who had roots actually in China would die 6 to 7% sooner than their American counterparts and other Chinese women if they were born in a year in which Chinese astrology had dubbed ill-fated. So that proves that Chinese astrology is correct. Yes, that is exactly what it proves. No, that is not what it proves. Come on, Doc. It's a correlation. I was putting on my news hat. Your tinfoil hat? That's how CNN would report it. Okay, I'm sorry. You're right. CNN uses the news hat. Fox News uses the tinfoil hat. Got it. Got it. Okay. What it proves is that belief affects our physical being. Yeah, I could think of time and time again, there are a lot of really cool studies showing that prayer and faith can have a positive effect on a patient's well-being. Right, and I just think of like how readily the medical community will call like, you know, someone who's affected by cancer, you know, will be compared to a warrior or like in a battle, like their battle with cancer, their whatever, you know, like that is not the medical community. That is very much go watch pink ribbons, Inc. Yes, that is, that is the different community altogether. I mean, we're not going to go around saying you're not a warrior. You're just a patient and demoralize people because that would affect their beliefs and affect their recovery. Right. And you know, we're like, that's fine. If that helps, whatever. 
same thing. I kind of do like prayer and things like that. And I've, well, I'm not a you know, very religious or praying person, as you've probably gathered from listening to this podcast. I've prayed with patience because I know that it's a positive benefit for them. And right. they'll ask me and I will say, sure. It doesn't hurt me at all. Are you really that ugly of a person to be like, no, yeah, that's stupid. No, I say that for my anti-vaccination patients. Yeah. So I thought that study was really interesting. But that leads us to kind of look at this phenomenon. If you're experiencing this and you believe that something dictated by your culture is causing it, you are more likely to experience the symptoms that are described and ascribed to that particular entity. And you are more likely to actually visualize some form of that entity in your personal space. Yeah, I definitely can see that. So I can see where all of this falls in that middle ground because sleep paralysis is definitely a medical problem. But there's a lot of legends and history and culture behind it. It's very much like this was tailor-made for our show. This topic, which thank you, world, for making this topic for our show. Before we go into the history, I wanted to, you know, just kind of cleanse the area, make sure we're not going to have any visits tonight, and I'm going to read you a German nursery rhyme that was recorded in 1859. I lay me down to sleep. No nightmare shall plague me until they swim all the waters that flow upon the earth and count all the stars that shine in the sky. Okay, well, now we're cleansed. <laughs> yes. I just think it's interesting because that was something that was taught to children to say before they went to sleep. And then we went to the whole, like, if I die before I wake thing, which is, like, even darker. The Metallica song? Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> the first appearance of a sleep paralysis-associated entity was in the Assyrian tradition, and it was a spirit called Elut. And he was sort of a demon who would hide in dark caverns, ruins. He would slink through the streets at night, waiting to envelope any unwary of his presence. And he throws himself on the sleeper while they're asleep. Well, some things that are mentioned sometimes, like Bible, you have Jacob wrestling the angels. Not me, Bible Jacob. Wrestling the angel in his sleep. In the Quran, you have Muhammad with the angel pressing on his chest until he started to recite the Quran. And I think that those are, you know, two fairly well-known recorded incidents. You're not allowed to take the supernatural element out of the Bible or the Quran. Why not? Because faith and people and religion and things. I don't know. It feels intolerant. We can kind of look at this one. It's kind of a, it's got a Torah connection. Okay, so have you heard of Lilith? Yes, Lilith is the first wife of adam feminist icon mother of demons yes, yes her little affair so there was a prototype of the hebrew interpretation of lilith in sumeria and she dates back to 2400 bce so she's old sure she still looks great you're um, calling her an old hag <laughs> not yet <laughs> So she's mentioned in Sumerian mythology, and she's commonly depicted as kind of a sphinx woman when she's associated with a screech owl. And she definitely has like a nighttime, watch yourself, I'll get you, definitely goes after men kind of feel to her. Yeah, and some of the etchings from the time, she has talons. So this predates her existence as Adam's first wife by quite a bit. But there is a mention of her in the Torah in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 14, wild cats shall meet with hyenas, goat demons shall call to each other, 
There too shall Lilith repose and find a place to rest. There shall the owl nest and lay and hatch and brood in its shadow. She does appear in the Bible. So she goes back a ways, cast in a very negative light. And here we also get her lying down and we have the owl appearing and shadows and things like that. So we get the, her association again with nighttime and sleep and things that go bump in the night. Later, the word Lilith was used to describe female spirits. The term Lilum was used to describe male spirits that would come in the night and kind of have erotic interactions with sleepers. And there are a lot of warnings for people not to sleep alone, men not to sleep in a house alone, or else Lilith would get them. And these come out in the Talmud, which are text written later. And she also becomes associated with jealousy over human children. And she begins to be associated with sudden infant death syndrome and death complications and fertility problems. So she gets blamed for a lot of bad stuff. And it was said that she would bite children's necks and suck out their blood or choke them in their sleep. People were very nervous about Lilith. And then later, in the alphabet of Ben Sarah, Lilith is portrayed as Adam's first wife. Now, I love the reason that Adam originally did not like Lilith or, depending on the reading, why Lilith left Adam. Because the reason was that she wanted to be on top. Lilith believed that she and Adam were equals because they were both formed from the earth. And he says to her, like, I will not lie beneath you. And she's like, tough shit. I'm gone. God's like, you're right. You need a more subservient, docile, well-meaning partner. So he takes Adam's rib and makes Eve, who is therefore like a lesser being, subservient to him. And that works out really well for Adam. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, no apples or anything happen from Eve. But then is the reason why she became symbol of the feminist movement is because she refused to submit to the man. Yeah, she wasn't going to take that. It's probably also why she came to be associated with the spirit that came and got on top of you in the night. Definitely. I think there yeah. might be a slight connection there. So there's the getting on top thing. And then there's the night creature thing which is kind of the direct translation of the hebrew is related to that and it's like a screech owl yeah yeah there's like five different ways it could translate yeah like night creature night monster screech owl just basically something that comes the night that's creepy yeah and i think that there's a really interesting tradition surrounding lilith in like older Hebrew culture, circumcisions or brisk are typically done eight days after a male child is born. And it was believed that Lilith had dominion over those boys until they were circumcised. And for female children, it was just 20 days. They had it much rougher. But she could come and take them back at any time. And so people would get increasingly nervous as the day of the brisk approached. And it would culminate on the day before the brisk when they all set up, had a vigil to make sure that Lilith didn't come and get the child. What were they going to do if she came? I don't know. I want to know. I need to ask someone. <laughs> well, there are bowls from the time period. Ben Sar was written in the 7th century. And in the 7th century, they found bowls with inscriptions protecting against Lilith. Like incantations and yeah. things. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think the next interesting historical incidents of these beings that come at night are the mares. The Maras, yes. Which is where Nightmare comes from. 
Oh, I thought it was horses. All this time I thought it was horses. Uh, night horses? <laughs> night horses. You're going to ride horses in your streams? Yeah, it'd be really scary if you didn't know what you were doing. So these are associated with the Anglo-Saxon tradition, any of the Norse mythology as well. Right, that area of Europe. In Iceland and Finland, it's associated with people creating the phenomenon. They believe that it is something done by mortals to other mortals using supernatural methods. It would be someone's fault if it happened to you. They would have put a curse on you. It's usually motivated by envy or malice. And then there's also a legend about a femme fatale who pays a witch to kill a warrior king with sorcery. And when that doesn't work, she crushes him. And that legend is out of Sweden, and I'm not even trying the names in it. You can Google Sweden witch killing of great warrior, and I'm sure it's going to pop right up for you. Into the crushing, that's actually where the term Mara comes from. Mm -hmm. It's derived from the Old Norse verb to crush. And the witch tried to kill him with sorcery. When that didn't work, she just bashed his head in. So she she had a finesse. And style, apparently. So when I think of Anglo-Saxon legends, tradition, literature, I think Beowulf. Who doesn't? Because we were all forced to read that in every great literature class we ever took, right? So if you have attended school, you're aware of Grendel. Which can I say that's not a very scary name? Disagree. Really? Grendel. Say it's scary. Grendel. Yeah. It's scary? Yeah. Goosebumps. Okay. Maybe it is scary. So he's described as a Mara, a descendant of Cain. Part of the extended Lilith tradition has her birthing all demons. Right. The the one citation in the Bible just has her with the list of all the demons. And then you have the negative connotation, of course, of, you know, that murderous Cain. Grendel comes at night and crushes men during their sleep. So again, we have that repeated theme. In Beowulf, they're all in the Great Hall sleeping before they're going to go for a great battle. And he storms in at night and just crushes everybody. Rothgar warns Beowulf that the other heroes have not been able to defeat Grendel because they were not able to stay awake. So don't fall asleep or Grendel will come crush you. Some vague tense, right? Well, and then... The true villain after Grindel is actually Grindel's mother. Which it could be argued, since he's a demon thing, is Lilith? Some scholars do think that it can be like an association. It's important to note that in these situations and scenarios, these nightmares, this Grindel character and his mother, can actually cause physical harm and death. They're not just scary. So it's important to note that the Mara is a supernatural being either a demon or some sort of eternal force something outside the realm of humanity more of a beast and later in england and france that's kind of condensed and changed into a witch and a witch is a living person who uses supernatural methods to affect her neighbors in terrible ways so earlier I mentioned that in Johnson's Dictionary from the 1700s, one of the first English dictionaries, it had that nightmare equals incubus. And so what is an incubus? An incubus means to lie on top of. And it is kind of the erotic counterpart of the nightmare. And later, there was a differentiation created between male and female night visitors and the incubus were the male and then there were the succubus who were female 
And that actually means to lie under, but they usually didn't. These words and these ideas started to be taken down around the time of the birth of Christ. So what are they? Well, they are night visitors who come and do erotic things to you while you're sleeping. Tell me the erotic things. Um, well, sort of, they make you think sexy stuff. And you, like, wake up and they're doing sexy stuff to you. They're very explicit descriptions of what they did. They would come and they would have sex with a sleeping person. And... Sometimes the sex would lead to the creation of demons. Demon babies. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes they created these ways where the succubus would have sex with the man and then was able to transfer the semen to the incubus and the incubus would have sex with another woman and then she would get pregnant. And I just can't figure out how these kids look like my neighbor. Well, I know. I know how it happened. How? Nighttime spirits. Oh, of course. Obviously, this was a very long thought out conspiracy. Demon conspiracy, you understand. But you're right. Besides that, sometimes they would just elicit these sexual thoughts. It became very important around this time to demonize these visits when chastity became a really prime virtue in the church, which... Let's not dwell on the irony there. You know, there was a lot of inquest into whether or not these nocturnal meetings with spirits and demons and devils, whether or not they were consensual. You know, it was one thing to have a spirit force himself on you. It was quite another to be like, all right, let's go. <laughs> I hope that incubus comes tonight. Oh, yeah. Clear my calendar. A lot of times people would blame others for creating these entities that would come to them like i remember there was a nun who was like this priest is evil oh you know what is the guy with the deal with the devil yeah urbane urbane he was accused of bewitching these nuns right he sent demons to have the nuns have these sexy dreams right so that was a common theme at this time was people could create these demons or you know send their spirits out or whatever to go and accost these virginal, sweet, pure nuns. And that was just not something that the church was going to stand for. Right. And there was a lot of uh, interesting writing really early on about this, about what you did with these unholy thoughts. You're being accosted by them in your sleep when your defenses are down. And that separated that out. That made these unholy, sexy dreams not your fault. Which, you know, the Catholic Church usually finds a way to make everything your fault. So I'm kind of impressed. So they said that it was your fault if you kind of liked it. If you you acted Ah, the nuances of Catholic guilt. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. It was up to the person to do with those thoughts, to do with those dreams. So if you got up and you were like, oh man, that demon. The next morning, definitely not okay. Going to hell. Going to hell. But if you got up and you're like, oh my God, you had to be traumatized, right? Like you needed to be traumatized. You need to have your Catholic guilt. You needed to have your guilt. Okay. As long as you felt bad about it, it was okay. Augustine had to write a little on this. St. Augustine, you know, of the grass. And he wrote, there is too a very general rumor, which many have verified by their own experience, or which trustworthy persons who have heard of experiences of others corroborate, that sylvans and pans, who are commonly called incubi, have often made wicked assaults upon women and satisfied their lust upon them, and that certain devils called deuces by the Gauls are constantly attempting and affecting this impurity is so generally affirmed that it would be impudent to deny it. 
By the way, Pan is another mythological figure who is associated with sleep paralysis, and that is where the term panic comes from. A lot of etymology on this episode. Yeah, I can't help myself. Sorry. So he's basically saying that I have it on good authority that this is happening, and we need to tackle the problem head on, because to deny it at this point, when we've heard about it from so many repressed monks who have no other sexual outlet and keep having these dirty dreams. It must be true. I think we have a problem with population bias, maybe like bad sampling, but whatever. They weren't going for good science here. Yeah, no, no. Actually, they were going to not have good science. Right, right. Excommunicating Galileo, things like that. We talked about at the time of Urbane, there were these witch hunters and they had witch hunting handbooks and these were detailed in those handbooks. Oh, absolutely. There was a lot of writing on the kinds of things that incubi and succubi could do to you and what had been done to people. And I'm telling you, they read like bodice rippers, Jacob bodice rippers this is what you're reading before you get to bed at night no i don't want nightmares my catholic guilt would kick in you don't have catholic guilt i borrow yours so in the witch trials in britain and later in salem i mean we didn't want to stop a good thing while we had it going people would say you know that their neighbors were creating these entities or that they were actually appearing in spirit Form to do the things that incubi and succubi did. In one account from 1599, in the trial of Olive Barthraw, her neighbor, Joan, testified that a shape-changing spirit tormented her at night in a thick, dark substance about one foot long. Yeah, it was one foot long. Yeah, it was. <laughs> came in her chamber and was scraping her walls, kissing and slavered on her. I don't know what slavered means. I can imagine. <laughs> if it's one foot long, I can too. Lying on her breast and pressing her sore. He restrained her hands and voice. Yeah. That's one accusation. And that was actually used to convict that woman of being a witch because she believed that she sent the one foot long scraping, kissing fog to her. Of course. Of course. So obviously Olive did it. She was found guilty because she weighed less than duck. That's how justice works. Lather, rinse, repeat in the New World in the Salem Witch Trials where similar things were mentioned and you can go find them, like I said, bodice rippers. This has gone from a completely supernatural phenomenon that you were completely helpless against with Amara. It can actively harm you and it is great enough that only the superest of superheroes can conquer it to being something that you are responsible for fighting off to being something that someone can do to you. We've seen a lot of changes and we're getting a lot of really varied old hag stories. Yeah, they're kind of combining and mixing and... Right, we've got the sex thing going on now too. So I thought we should take a look at some of the more modern pervasive traditions. There was a very detailed study done in Newfoundland, and there's a book on this called The Terror That Comes in the Night, and it's centered by a scholar who's working there. In Newfoundland, you can hag someone. It's a verb. Oh, I love when people verb nouns. I do too. So to hag someone, there's a very specific process that you have to do. Now, listeners, we're going to tell you how to do it. We do not endorse doing it. <laughs> Don't hag people. That can't be nice. Okay. So to hag somebody, what you do is you have to say the Lord's Prayer backwards in the name of the devil. And then ideally there's some kind of either bloodletting for 
the devil, or you do some sort of ritual involving a knife, reports vary. So just maybe do a little bit of both. You can stab furniture with a knife, apparently, and that works. And so then you call to the hag and you go to sleep. And when you go to sleep, your spirit will be able to go to the person who has wronged you in some way and hag them. So why would you hag somebody? Well, in two of the reports I read, it was like someone feeling like they couldn't get the girl they wanted, so they decided to punish either them or their significant others. Good reason. Petty jealousy seems to be one of the big ones. But don't worry. Should you be the object of an unjust hagging, there are ways to counteract the spell. All right, what do we need to do? I'm not getting hagged by our listeners now. Okay, don't hag us. Oh my God, y'all, don't hag us. I just thought of that. That'd be really scary. Can you imagine if we like woke up and there were like 150 people in our room going, do more podcast, do more podcast. We're doing the best we can. <laughs> Sorry, guys. So to prevent yourself from being hagged, you can sleep with a Bible under your pillow. That's a good one. If you don't have a Bible, a knife works. Okay, now this is only going to work in Newfoundland, by the way, or with the old with the Newfoundland tradition, because there are different methods in different areas. But in Newfoundland, you can sleep with a Bible under your pillow, and if you don't have a Bible handy, you can substitute a knife. I don't know, but sleeping with a knife under my pillow—that seems dangerous. Maybe a pocket knife closed. I don't know. I don't know if that there's, works. There's got to be some way to fight these off without having weaponry. Okay, there is. You yeah. can make a spirit bottle. Oh, that's not, I could do a spirit bottle. That seems safer than a knife under my pillow. What do you think a spirit bottle is? Like a bottle that I can use like in Ghostbusters to just you know, suck them up. No, no, that's not it at all. So what you do is you take an empty bottle. Yeah, like, yeah, it would have to be empty to suck them up. Oh, no, no, no. You pee in the bottle. I don't want to pee in the bottle. <laughs> this is not a road trip. Get it together, man. This is the only time I will pee in a bottle. You pee in the bottle, and you put the bottle under your bed. You seal it, too. Oh, well, if it's sealed, good. It can't spill. Right. That is the passive approach that's like to ward off future attacks. But should the old hag get into your room, even with the spirit bottle present, you can take it a step further. If you can manage to swing the spirit bottle at the hag, the person, the host that sent it out will die. So if I swing my pee bottle... At this mysterious being. While you're paralyzed, by the way. (laughs) At this mysterious being that's trying to crush my chest. Who looks a lot like the guy who would not stop trying to kiss you that you told repeatedly to stop trying to kiss you. Then they'll die. Right. At their house, wherever they are. All right, one second. I need to get a bottle. Ah! Oh, wait. I have a wine bottle right here. How convenient. So what are some of the other traditions around the world? Okay, well, there's an Inuit tradition, and it has a name. I want to hear you say this. (laughs) I'm just, I'm ready. I've been waiting like a week for you to attempt this, and let's go. The Apung... (laughs) Apungmangirnik. I just want to apologize to any of our Inuit listeners. Aquamangirnik. Apungmangirnik. All they seem is trying her best. Upon <laughs> Mangirik. Upon Mangirik? Good try. Yay! I can do words. Not those words. That's a really hard word. Their sleep paralysis experience 
The state itself has that name that I just massacred. And it's a usually accompanied by like roaring and humming sounds. And they will report seeing people who are very much in the shamanistic tradition present in their room. A lot of the time they say they're handsome, but they're wearing like animal clothing and things like that. So very nature related. Creepy, but kind of cool. I know. Like one woman said there was a handsome man wearing a caribou disguise with antlers in her room and I was like that's they could be worse buckskins and antlers I don't know I'm not hating it another um, bodice ripper <laughs> it's interesting to watch how the culture has shifted there because like the younger kids who experience it will say like oh it's aliens mm. and there's like much sadness about it you know because it's like oh those traditions are going away right. and that, that's actually a, a common thing that's happening throughout mm. the world right. it, but it's a very good barometer for how that culture is moving well, so in Japan, you have the Kanchibara, which are the retaliating spirits. And reading about these worries me. Okay. Because they are associated with spirits, and it happens more in children. And it could be punishments for staying up too late at night studying. Yeah. So all medical students beware. <laughs> Goodness knows we need to keep that in check. That shows some cultural difference right there, I tell you. But also it could be used as a punishment for behaving badly towards people during the day or taking day naps, and that's when they can come for you. And also some of the kids say that it can happen if you're falling asleep while you're holding a toy Mm -hmm. or while you're crying. So it's interesting that this is the first time we've read about one where it was a punishment... For you not acting appropriately in your society. Although that's not the only case of it. No, it's a morality tale, almost. But I find it interesting, when I was reading about the Japanese version, it seems to be more associated with children there. And it has a very heavy presence in pop culture, in the manga, graphic novels that come out, and in movies, also on television, in comedy and dramatic situations which I thought was so interesting. Like, where is that comedy? There's also, like, very little literature on how to prevent it because kids almost dare each other to have the experience. It becomes a really great little urban legend, Mm -hmm. little child's game, kind of Bloody Mary thing. So there's got to be some ways besides the pee bottle, I mean spirit bottle, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to fight this off. Although the pee bottle is my favorite. Like, I think it is definitely the most colorful anti-witching device I've ever heard of. There are some pretty universal methods for avoiding this. Like, one big thing that people say is, like, just don't sleep on your back. Scientifically, you are going to have this more frequently when you are sleeping on your back. Do you want to know the worst sleep paralysis experience I've ever had? Sure. I had sleep paralysis when I was sleeping on my stomach. Oh, that's even creepier because you can't see what's going on. No, I felt like I was melting into my mattress. It was the scariest thing. Like I felt like if I didn't catch myself before I melted all the way through, I would be dead forever. It was awful. I knew where I was, but I couldn't see anything. I was at my mom's house in the middle of fucking nowhere, so there's no light, no anything, no sound. I just felt like the dark was eating me alive. It was the scariest thing. And then this thing came and started breathing in my ear and was like, you know who I am. You know who I am. Don't tell me It was me so things. creepy. It was so awful. And then I did a false awakening thing, and then I looked back, and I saw that our daughter was in the room with the thing, and it was awful. 
It was it was really bad. Like it was the scariest dream I've ever had. Like even talking about it now, I'm uncomfortable. And it happened months ago. So. But it was the worst experience I've ever had because it was sleeping on my stomach. One of the traditions I love that's something that I grew up with is from the kind of Afro-Caribbean culture of putting a broom in your room. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that's also gone into voodoo culture, which just seeps into the culture in Louisiana because the demon or old hag or whatever will get busy counting the straws on the broom. So it will keep you safe. So if you're lucky enough to be visited in the night by a witch that has OCD. Yes. Apparently the all broom, demons and witches have OCD. Not that all people who have OCD are witches and demons. <laughs> there is a tradition in Sweden, again, where you should not peer through the keyhole before bed. Why would you do that? I don't know. But apparently, if you look through the keyhole, that encourages the hag to come into your house because that's how they enter the dwelling. What I love is that if you are worried about a bewitched person coming in, kind of sending that old hag, sending that spirit your way, you can escape by saying lots of names really fast. And if you land on the name of the person then they will have to respond. They will have to turn back into human form. That's like very Rumpelstiltskin. Well, there's actually a really strong tradition of people's names having these kind of magical powers going back just millennia and millennia. That's one of my favorite things to read about in folklore. We should do an episode on names. So in the Inuit culture, there's like a very nice vibe. You should avoid conflict. Like some people are like pee in a bottle. The Inuits are like, don't be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> so- I think the Inuits are my favorite so far. Just be nice and you'll be good. Like there are specific charms to say during an attack, like Trude, come in the morrow for something to borrow. The spirit will go away, but whoever sent the hag will have to come back and ask you for something to borrow. Oh, so you know who did it. Yeah, I think Mm. so. I think you could put them on trial as a witch. Yeah, fabulous. If by like happenstance, your neighbor has (laughs) sleep paralysis the night before... And then you're trying to bake, like, a cake for them for their birthday. And you, like, come over. You're like, hey, can I borrow some eggs? I'm just doing something with them. And then you're a witch. That's really unfortunate. You're just trying to bake them a cake. Like, be nice. So when we stopped kind of buying into the whole witchcraft thing, we were like, well, sleep paralysis is fake, too. That's ridiculous. And so people got really nervous about it and kind of stopped wanting to claim the experience, I think. And then people just kind of stopped talking about it. The dialogue really dies down as the witches go away. And so in America now, you see an expression of a lot of different anxieties and a lot of different angles of understanding. Sometimes when people have the experience, they become fearful about their psychological and physical health. And they think that it's a manifestation of like a brain tumor or a psychological disorder. And they get very nervous and want to go see a doctor to be told that they're feeling much better, which is so different than wanting to go see a witch doctor because you think the neighbors sent something. And then there's also a lot of talk of religious, spiritual entities. Like if you have an understanding of the world that is more framed in religion and faith, you're going to think, oh, that's a demon. That's definitely a demon, demon from hell. Yeah, it's kind of the, the God helmet idea. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you are sent into this state where you're viewing something, you know, whatever your beliefs are is how you're going to interpret them. So if you believe in witches and demons, you'll think it's a witch or a demon. If you believe in God or angels or, you know, you might believe it's an angel. Or if you believe in 
aliens, you might think it's an alien. Yeah, there is a big connection between sleep paralysis and alien abductions. I'm not going to go into that because I don't want our Coast to Coast AM listeners to stop listening. And then, of course, if you're someone that believes in ghosts or other spiritual beings, you may interpret it in that way. Or if you believe in body gobbling darkness, it may present itself that way. Because there's been more of a community created on message boards and people can network and get to each other and kind of realize that they're not alone with this experience. They seem to exhibit such great relief when they find out they're not the only person this happens to. And it happens to something like between 25 and 30 percent of the world's population. So it's not an uncommon occurrence. So you're right. This is a very common phenomenon. And interestingly enough, it is something where there is a higher incidence rate in societies with active traditions of haunting spirits. That is very interesting. So that reminded me of when we were talking about possessions and the exorcist, that cultures where that is prevalent, belief have a lot more possessions. Okay, so I've offered you myriad explanations for what sleep paralysis is from the cultural perspective, Doc. I would like to hear you try to explain it from a medical perspective. I dare you to do better. Yeah, so it's when a demon comes in the night Mm -hmm. and lays on your chest. Yeah. You know, they can come and they can steal your sperm or your breath or kill you. It's a... Well, that's fun. No. No. <laughs> Just kidding, you guys. So, sleep paralysis is an extremely interesting subject. It has a lot of research done into it over the last century. Like we talked about, it was first mentioned in 1928, and it's related to, in a way, other sleep disorders and psychiatric disorders. So you have these different types of hallucinations you can have. I'm going to throw some words out for you. you got a hypnagogic hallucination, mm-hmm. which is something that happens when you're falling asleep. Or a hypnopompic hallucination that happens when you are waking up. Okay. And most of the time, these episodes of sleep paralysis are hypnopompic. It's when you're waking up. Hippopotamus. Hypnopompic. Hippopotamus. Yes. Is that not what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. And the reason we have these kind of episodes is related to your REM sleep. REM, rapid eye movement. Yeah, so REM sleep is a stage of sleep when you're dreaming. When you're having these dreams, your body is paralyzed. Messages sent out through your spinal cord to suppress motor movement. The one thing that you still have movement of is your eyes. So you have that random eye movement while you're in this kind of paralyzed state of dreaming. The thought is that you're having these episodes of sleep paralysis whenever you have interrupted REM sleep. So your body is still paralyzed, yet the rest of your brain starts to wake up. So I had the really awful experience at my mom's, and the other sleep paralysis experience that I will remember as long as I live was when we were living back in Louisiana, and our oldest son was little, and I was... I was having momsomnia and I passed out during the day and I woke up and there were these two dirty boys in my room. Like they looked like they were eight and 12 and they were wearing like all beige and they just were covered in this rust colored stuff, which I was like, oh, mud. But looking back, maybe it was blood because they looked creepy as fuck. Of course. And they were just standing there staring at me. They were right over the bed and they were just, they weren't touching me. You know, they weren't like on my chest or anything, but they were 
definitely. Well, it may have been kind of what was on your mind. It's very shining. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can have these isolated episodes of sleep paralysis, which is what most people have. There are some people that have recurrent isolated sleep paralysis. And Doesn't recurrent kind of negate isolated? I know, but that is what the medical term is. Y'all I doctors need thing. to stop with yeah. your wordification. Ugh. That is what we do. We do that and we compare weird bodily functions to food. What do you mean? You really want me to describe No, that? I don't know what you mean at all. Like different types of stool will be called like current jelly stool. Oh, <laughs> God. Who's looking at this going, yum? I mean, like, really? Y'all are weird. And you love an acronym. Yes. Lots of letters. But these recurrent isolated sleep paralysis episodes last a lot longer. And how they experience is, is different. So researchers, we also like to categorize things have categorized the different types of sleep paralysis that you can have. Are they named after food? Unfortunately not. Can we name them after food? Yes. Awesome. So the first type are the intruder. That's exactly what you would imagine. You wake up in this weird state and you feel like someone's in the room. Okay, yeah, that's mine. That's what I've had. Yeah, and that Mm -hmm. is the more common of them. And you get this just sense of terror and the reason you get that is because your brain goes into this hypervigilant state so it just activates that threat response that's built into us so the anterior cingulate which is part of the brain that has a lot of different connections to other parts of the brain and helps integrate your different sensations and emotions so it's kind of like one of the processing units it helps integrate everything and that gets activated along with the amygdala that helps interpret your emotional experiences so all this is heightened so you're going to experience heightened emotions and the heightened emotions gonna be like what the hell is happening to me and it's gonna be 10 times worse right you get that fear response that hypervigilance response goal of that is self-protection okay so the food name this is the pickle this is pickle sleep paralysis this is like when you get your sandwich and you go to bite into it and you look and you're like there's a fucking pickle on my sandwich this does not belong here Sure, whatever you say. And you what like, if you like pickles? Then you're going to need another metaphor. <laughs> Call me. We'll talk about it. Well, the next type, and it's almost like a progression of this stage, is the incubus stage. So that's Our, when you have sex with demons. Yeah, not really. It's, okay. It should be called more the old hag stage. And this is where you feel that pressure on your chest. So since you have the REM sleep that has really paralyzed the rest of your body, you're not able to control your breathing. So whenever you get that hypervigilant state, what do you do whenever you're super worried, super scared? You breathe faster. So you're, you're trying to breathe faster. You want to breathe faster. You're worried. You want to be able to oxygenate your blood so you can run away from the leopard or whatever. But in this case, you're not able to do that because it's paralyzed. Okay. And you get a resistance feeling. To your body trying to respond to this scary thing that's there. And you feel that as a constriction or a pressure or resistance on your chest. Mm -hmm. Which could be interpreted as... Something pressing on your chest. Right. This one I'm going to call the bacon version of sleep paralysis. Okay, wait. I love bacon. And I don't want to associate something terrible with bacon well honey if you eat bacon every day you will have a feeling like something is pressing on your chest <laughs> so it's called a heart attack yeah, exactly so this is the bacon version and so these isolated sleep paralysis episodes 
are more likely to be these two intruder incubus visitations and you can definitely have that with your recurrent episodes as well but the third type of sleep paralysis you can have is the vestibular motor sensation that relates to how you sense your body in the world how you orient yourself exactly exactly. okay so kind of where your head is or how you move your eyes how you know that you're standing up or sitting down or whatever Okay, so how you interact with space. Yes, and so this affects your orientation in space. You can have those feelings of floating, or the mo- I get this all the time, the falling sensation. Right, but you snap out of it. Like, right. I think that if right. you were in sleep paralysis and you felt like you fa- were falling, it would be, like, very Alice. Yeah, I think it's, like, the most extremely mild form probably wouldn't qualify but is obviously related it's like where you feel like you've fallen back into your body as right, a dream right. yeah this also has been associated with out-of-body experiences and that's where you're like floating above your body and you look down and you see your body like we said some people have felt that it's possible that these alien intruder ideas are related to sleep paralysis. They can have out of body. They can have the people coming in. Doing okay, things look, to dude, them. you've already taken like ghosts, witches, goblins, demons, all this away. Do not fuck with aliens in this episode. <laughs> Okay, we'll do that another episode. Okay. <laughs> and you can get other types of sensations as well. Growling, buzzing, electronic noises, clicking. Like in Japan, there's a big association with metal. Like people always feel like something metallic is touching them or like chains are on them. And that's just like a cultural reading. But I think it's interesting that that is a common experience in that one area. It's felt that the cause of this is related to problems with the REM cycle. You know, either mm-hmm. it's... You are having fragmented REM sleep, which could be genetic. All of these kind of hypnagogic problems are very genetic. Chances are, if you have sleep paralysis, your family also has it. Or things like sleepwalking. Oh, yeah. Or sleep talking, which are common in my family. Runs down. I know my dad does it. I do it. My kid does it. Both Lucky your kids you. do it. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's just chatting away. We can't even stop talking in our sleep. <laughs> So I'm going to call that the Pop Rocks version. Please explain that Because it provides a sensation that shouldn't be there. So like when you eat food, it shouldn't fight back. Okay. It's like Pop Rocks. And so when you sleep, you shouldn't be falling. All right, whatever you say. So those are my food metaphors. Now I'm a doctor. can have this with people that have just erratic sleep behavior, shortened sleep cycles. It reminds me of the Japanese version. You just mentioned that of the people that stay up too late at night studying. Mm-hmm. That would cause you to have more episodes like this if you're prone to it. Like when I was having momsomnia is when one of my really bad experiences was. And then the last time was when I'd gone home to visit my parents and I was having a really hard time sleeping because I apparently have adjusted away from sleeping in the wilderness with no sound and no light. My sleep cycles were definitely interrupted the last two times. I've had vivid experiences. Yeah, and it can also be related to like anxiety. So, you know, it's a stressful experience will make it worse. Mm-hmm. That also is going to affect your ability to go to sleep, your REM cycle, which can also be affected to people with depression. The quality of the sleep is worse because REM cycle can be fragmented or shortened. I think it's interesting because I know that Freud says... Freud! Freud. You know that guy. In his interpretation of dreams, which is probably my favorite Freud, I love that Freud, he says that like things we do in our dreams are basically to keep us from waking up. So if you're thirsty, you might run and get a glass of water in your dream, and then you don't want a glass of water in real life quite so much. And if you want a pen... It's just penis. Okay. It's penis. You want Cigar? A penis. 
sword. It's penis. Oh, this is easy. <laughs> so all it's penis. Same, and for some reason, teeth mean masturbation. I don't know. Okay, they can't all be winners. He wrote a lot. Broken teeth, right? <laughs> no, necessarily broken teeth. Well, that's unfulfilled sexual desire. Uh, okay. Just chewing, I think, is masturbation. I don't claim to understand the way that man's mind works. He needs to see himself. I was going to ask you what yeah. you thought Freud would say about sleep paralysis. Like, how would he relate that into this schema? Like, do you think he would say that we're just looking for a solution? Like, our brain's just searching for something that will justify the way we're feeling? Kind yeah, of like, probably like related to anxiety, not being able to do what you want to do. So repression? Yeah. Oh, it's, oh, it's got to be repression. Repression. And the mother. The mother. It's the mother's. It's the mother. It's the mother's fault, obviously. Just like Freud, other great physicians throughout the centuries have tried to solve this problem and a byzantine physician in the 7th century Paulus agonita trying to fix it the way that everyone liked to fix things back then burning them alive bleed them oh, okay you gotta bleed them first <laughs> or another or, favorite or. besides bleeding are purgatives what does that mean oh you know oh, what it, it means is that does it make you poop what's yep. it do it makes yep. you poop i was guessing <laughs> Try to get that current jelly stool out. That's what you're doing. And you know, if that didn't work, you could try cupping or scarification of the throat. Oh my god. That seems extreme. Or you can shave your head. I like the pee bottles so much better than all of this. I think I would shave my head before I scarred my throat. I thought you were going to say before you peed in a bottle. I was like, no, you wouldn't. I no. love your hair. That's not true. And then in the 10th century, a Persian physician, Bukhari, talked about the humors. Okay. And he was worried the vapors of phlegm were ascending from the stomach to suffocate the brain. So he wanted to... Bleed him. Bleed him. Bleed him. Okay. But then you do have other physicians that have written texts on this, such as John Bond in 1753. And he suggested poking yourself with a pen or other stimulation, you know, because... While you're paralyzed, you can poke yourself. Poke yourself with a pen. Yeah. Much like you can swing a pee bottle. Exactly. <laughs> so sleep paralysis has really become a medical problem. You know, it went from being folklore. It went from being myths and legends and concern for witches to being something that science knows a lot about. And you know, we have lots of ways to treat it. Not that interesting, really, but. <laughs> Like what? Like, seriously? Like, uh, like good sleep hygiene. You can use SSRIs and tricyclic antidepressants to treat it. But mostly just like really good sleep hygiene, making sure you're going to sleep without any problems, getting good rest, things like that. Eating leafy greens. That's always a good thing. <laughs> just be a better person. Just don't be such a fucking mess. I mean, like, that's what the doctors would tell me. I'm, I guess I'm going with the Inuit's idea. Yeah. You know, just don't be a dick. And, <laughs> and you won't have sleep paralysis. Yeah. If you have sleep, too much sleep paralysis, you're probably being a dick. No, no. <laughs> okay. It's a cardinal sign. <laughs> I mean, I'm really glad that modern medicine got to this problem before it was, like, killing massive amounts of a single population. Because that's never happened, obviously. Oh, definitely not. Right? I mean, sleep paralysis is just something that you kind of suffer through, and then yeah, and the you stuff, wake up in the morning with Yeah, and then and the stuff that goes terrifying. along with it, it's just a story, obviously. So... There's absolutely no reason that there should have been, like, almost 200 deaths in a 10-year span. No, it shouldn't be. Well, there were. Oh. <laughs> so, as we like to do here, we like to, you know, look and see if this has ever really... If the old hag has ever come for her victims, if there's ever been a case where this folklore has worked its way into having real-world consequences. And I cannot think of a better example of this than the 
sudden unexpected death syndrome that plagued the Hmong immigrants in the late 70s and early 80s in America. Oh, what happened to them? They were fighting against communists in Laos. They are a non-literate, pre-literate society. Interesting side note. Besides the Cherokee, they are the only people to have generated their own system of writing where there was none in a single generation. Interesting. Of course, the guy who did it said he was a god and stuff, so that kind of knocked him out of Sequoia territory, because Sequoia just did it out of the goodness of his heart for his people. And that was in the 20th century that this happened. So interesting side note. So the Hmong are a minority population in Laos, and they were fighting against the communists, and that didn't go so well when the communists took over, and like 100,000 people left the country. They went to Thailand, and eventually they made their way to the U.S. The first recorded sudden unexpected death syndrome associated with night terrors in the Hmong population was a man named Lai Hao of Orange County in 1977. And he worked as a medic. He'd been very well assimilated to American culture and was adjusting very well. And he was physically healthy and very conscious about health as he was a medic. And he died suddenly in his sleep. Just no explanation. Look of terror on his face. And then by the summer of 1981, 20 Hmong men had died under the same circumstances. Oh, but this got the CDC up in arms. It did. Worry about some sort of virus or bacteria from It definitely did. Right. Well, there were very significant numbers. I mean, you have to remember this is a small population. So it did get them very upset because... Only 30,000 Hmong lived in America at the time, so the ratio of victims equaled all five of the leading causes of death in their age group and other populations. And then an Orange County medical examiner said that half of all death among all Hmong people in America for this time period was attributed to this cause. So that's very statistically significant, I would say. Oh, they had to be just scared to death that this was some sort of crazy virus that was killing them so they opened an inquiry and they said well maybe it's just culture shock because culture shock can kill i don't know about that i don't either and then a very bright man in minnesota who was a medical examiner suggested that they might have been frightened to death interesting because they all died with this absolute look of terror on their face and the only thing that witnesses who had been there at the time of these people's deaths could say is there was like some weird breathing and like some really weird groaning noises and then they just died there was also a man named hang powell who is a former laotian general he blamed what was happening in this population on gas attacks committed by the communists during the war so he was trying to politicize it. And he was like, there was just a delay, a minor delay in the happening of this. It was a sleeper cell or something. Well, I mean, I would say that that at least has a little more credibility than, oh, they were scared. But they were scared. What were they scared of? Well, it seemed like they were dying in episodes of sleep paralysis. But sleep paralysis itself... Doesn't kill you. So, I mean, this was happening among the Hmong people in the U.S. I mean, was this something that happened to Hmong people or other Asian people in the world? It did. During the epidemic, eventually in 1983 or 84, I can't remember, it came to a head. And at that time, 116 otherwise healthy men had died of this. And it was happening among Japanese and Filipino men as well. 
In the Japanese population specifically, they estimated that between 500 and 1,000 deaths of men aged between 20 and 30 years could be attributed to this phenomenon. And a slang word actually evolved in Japan, and it's pokori, and it means snap. Oh, he died of the pokori in a snap, like very quickly, very right. suddenly. And in the Philippines, 43 out of 100,000 people die this way. So something's going on in that region, it would yeah, seem. Yeah, it seems. And the people in the Philippines say that the Badabat is to blame. What's a Badabat? A Badabat is an ugly, obese woman that lives in trees. That's scary. Yeah, and she comes for you. Okay, that might frighten me to death. <laughs> yes, she comes for you in the night. But she's their version of the hag. The sleep paralysis tradition of the Hamong people is an entity called the Dobsong. And this is something that will come and attack you in the night if you do not conduct your worship properly. Okay. So this is is another example of this vengeful spirit coming when you aren't appropriately interacting in society. So it's another morality tale. Yes, it is. And it's very significant there because they practice ancestor worship in that region. And it's believed that if you do not appease your ancestors and show them the proper respect and worship them properly, they'll stop guarding you and they will let this thing come and get you. So what is this thing? Is it another scary, beast, ugly woman waiting to attack in the trees? I think it can vary a lot. Um, One person who was interviewed described it as a large, hairy monster, not unlike a teddy bear with claws and teeth. A little toy bear with evil claws and teeth is coming get you. Or maybe just like a bear. I don't know if this is a translation error. I don't know what happened here. Um, I mean, a real bear would be scary. A real bear, yeah. Like maybe it's a real bear. I don't know. But it uses crushing attacks to press the life out of its victims. So did they find some sort of virus or? You mean other than the Badabot and the Dobsong? You you need another explanation. I need like a CDC explanation. Okay, so in 1984, the CDC blamed this on irregular heartbeats. Right. I okay. I need this sounded familiar. This is where Brugada syndrome was discovered. Oh, yeah. So this is an inheritable disorder that's related to the conduction system of the heart. It causes ventricular arrhythmia. So ventricular arrhythmia is whenever your ventricles, which is part of the heart, do not beat appropriately. And so then you do not have blood going to the rest of your body. And you know what happens when blood doesn't go to the rest of the body? You die. Yes. Bleed them. I don't think that'll fix it. Poop them. No, they need the blood. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> it was still called sudden unexpected death syndrome. So the term's still there, but the most common cause of it is Brugada syndrome. Right. And that, that was um, discovered in 1992. And the type of arrhythmia was discovered in 88. So it was kind of a slow progression on reverse engineering, I guess, what was going on. Yeah, so now people that have Brigada syndrome can get a implanted defibrillator that will shock the heart in case anything like this happens. This flares up, or like this could be fatal, I guess, when you're under stress. Right, so whenever you're under stress, you have a bigger chance of having this ventricular arrhythmia. They were able to figure this out by interviewing like three men who had survived these attacks. Yeah, because you can survive it, you know. Ventricular arrhythmia is one of the reasons to shock somebody, like you'd see on TV. Like if you trip and fall on a banana peel and they shock you on... In the ambulance on any no, medical TV no. drama ever. And you never shock someone at Ace's stall. It's flatlined. Flat it's bullshit. <laughs> that is doctor's like number one pet peeve about medical TV shows. 
So we've taken Ghost, Witches, and Grey's Anatomy on this oh, episode. Yeah, plus, plus, we like we never have sex in the call room, unfortunately. We're just too damn tired. <laughs> yeah, they kind of figured out what was going on. These men were predisposed to react this way to the night terrors because of a genetic defect. But there's a lot of thought that had they not had this culture that recognized the phenomenon it might not have been so terrifying. Well, plus there's a thought that the situation they were in, first going to Laos and then having to leave from there to maybe Thailand and then maybe the United States and all of these horrible wars they've had to go through has just led to this anxiety and PTSD type experiences that would lead you to have a higher risk of having sleep paralysis. And one thing I really loved about this story, even though it's a very sad story and 161 men died and that is incredible and like almost unbelievable is that it shows this very powerful intersection between culture, like what is it in your personal history and your belief system and your biology like it's this perfect intersection where it just kind of shows everything that there is to being human like all the components come together in this one albeit horrible experience but it's sort of poetic in a way i read a book before we did this episode called sleep paralysis by shelly adler and if you haven't read it you should really pause and go read it if you want to know more about nightmares (laughs) yeah This is very creepy. She says that people believe strongly enough that this phenomenon existed and that it was strong enough to kill. And it was only that strong because of their belief. But you don't need to worry about the old hag. Because it's just a story? Yeah, it's just a story. 